Welcome to Real Assets, Real Expertise, a podcast brought to you by Crestbridge. It's the place where we explore the world of real estate. Introducing your host, Stephanie Workman. You're listening to Real Assets, Real Expertise. So welcome to the latest episode of Real Assets, Real Expertise podcast. This week, I'll be talking to Sophia Hagen and Lisa Hinderdahl of Hagen Hinderdahl. I met Lisa and Sophia last year at an online conference run by Anastasia Klein at Maples Teasdale. And I just thought they'd be excellent guests to talk about delivering both commercial and community value via placemaking. I hope you enjoy. So um, thank you for joining me this morning um, on this latest podcast for Crestbridge. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Hagen Hinderdahl um, and how you met. Um, so hello, <laughs> we're very pleased to be here. Um, we are both architects in terms of our background, Lisa and I. So both from Lisa is Belgian American, I'm Austrian Polish. Um, we met in London as partners in a small architecture and interior architecture firm, and Whilst doing projects together there, we also realized that our ethos really aligns in terms of we don't just want to do large-scale architecture, but you can actually have the same impact on community, on people, on society with smaller interventions and especially through installation design or even smaller-scale product design. So throughout that experience of working together there, we realized, yeah, that's what we want to focus on. And this is how, about a year ago, our studio Hagen Hinderdell came into being. Um, and yeah, like I said, we have the two legs, the installation design and the product design. However, one doesn't exclude the other because our installations consist of products. So it's all designed with the continuous afterlife in mind. Um, it can all be repurposed afterwards or sold on, etc. And vice versa, the installations, like the parts of it, the products can be used, launched as products themselves, or the products can be formed into larger scale installations, um, permanent or temporary. Amazing. Sounds like very exciting work that you, what, that you do. So jumping straight in, what, what would you say that placemaking is? How would you define it? I would say that placemaking is very much about our responsibility to educate and about creating an urban intervention or an intervention where people come out of it with a new experience or a new outlook. So we look at it both from a marketing perspective and generating footfall, but also how can we learn something? How can we um, come out of it being more educated about the environment, about sustainability, about our well-being? So a project we recently did was Eden, and Sophia can tell you a bit more about that. Uh, yeah, so Eden kind of um, shows very, very well what Lisa has just explained in terms of we started with the narrative. Uh, the brief was sustainability. Um, it was a pitch for Grosvenor in Belgravia um, last year um, for a public square called the Halkin Arcade, which was just newly, newly renovated um, and it's a very beautiful square, but very empty. So they needed some placemaking exercise to generate footfall uh, for locals, but also for tourists and visitors. It's quite close to Harrods as well. Um, and sustainability is a broad term. 
So we looked at it context-driven. We looked at the actual square, which is also referred to as the secret garden of Belgravia. Right. And that's how we got into the theme of urban forestry, green lines of the city, did a lot of research on the topic. And that was before COVID hit the Western world. <laughs> and we already came up with this pitch proposal, which would show that um, we need to look after nature in order for nature to look after us and how important a healthy natural environment actually is for our own well-being um, and how important it is to create and regenerate more of those green spaces within the city. So we created with Eden a small micro-ecosystem of uh, urban forestry and greenery and different plants and different heights that gradually raised. People could enter that spiral. People could enter this spiral uh, and be educated exactly on those facts, why nature is so important for us. There are scientific, medical, psychological facts all across. And also it was interactive. So there was a central planter with only soil and they could help themselves to bags of seeds that wow. were there within the installation, plant their own seeds or take them home with them because that encouraged them to actually be interactive and actively start looking after nature nourishing Brilliant. It, and looking after sustainability and so, yeah. environment. Yeah, it sounds very um educational, which is something yeah. I must say I've never really thought about um as being a factor when you're designing um installations and placemaking. Yeah. So that's yeah. fascinating. But I think it's very important because um you otherwise it's okay, it's a great marketing um tool anyway because it generates football but it's talked about people learn something it's interactive they can actually participate in the installation and it became so popular throughout time um it was meant to stay up for two weeks they extended it two months two months and now it's there for good because like we mentioned before what we do is built to last consists of products so the planters of the installation are made from recycled timber from construction sites and they're built very sturdily so they can actually last forever and the installation changes with time because it's nature there mm. are plants in there and it became so popular with the locals but also with tourists in the area that Rovner decided to keep it there for good um and they got like an installation which was meant to be a temporary marketing thing um is now part of the landscape design within their square amazing so it ticks both boxes it's yeah. for them commercially valid obviously because <laughs> they only Let's face it, they paid for a temporary installation, mm -hmm. but also um, it added community value. It's more popular among locals within the environment there, the neighborhood, and it's more sustainable because it's not just being chucked away, but can live on. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it sounds like there are so many different factors to uh, take into account when, you know, designing um, placemaking and installations. What would you say your approach to design is? I know that you've both got an architectural background. Yeah, so I think coming from an architectural background, the first thing we always start with is context. We're quite context driven. It's kind of in your blood and DNA when you come from architecture. Um, so we start with researching into the location. What's the audience? Who's going to be the target demographic? Um, what's going to make this installation or placemaking scheme unique to that place? But beyond that, the reason I actually moved into place making installation design. Sophia, I think, is quite similar. There's something about the human tactility to design and how can you create that 
that kind of next level where you feel like you're part of the installation. So a lot of that comes down to our research um, and kind of our material research. So we do a lot into investigating with new technology, what's out there, what are people talking about, and how can we bring that into our design. So looking into sustainable materials, for example, we are about to release a new light product, um, which uses 3D printed sawdust, which is going to be a beautiful decorative fitting. (laughs) Yes. Um, And then in, we also did research when we um, recently exhibited at Dubai Design Week, NACRA, which are 3D printed concrete modular furniture pieces. And the whole idea is that you can actually use three modules, a stool, a kind of seat level and a bar level, and you can maneuver them and change your space. So placemaking doesn't have to be fixed. The design can be flexible and constantly changing. We've spoken a lot about the design elements that go into this and and your background as architects and how that feeds into um, the process. But how would you say, and this I know this will be on the minds of, of most of our listeners, um, thinking of our demographic here of our asset managers, investment managers, et cetera. How do you believe this approach adds commercial value to your schemes? For one, um, the obvious that it generates footfall. You can also extend the scheme, whatever the brief is for your placemaking exercise, that it uh, offers programming like ticketed events, et cetera, which then also generates some revenue. Um, but then also through the design itself. And I think that's quite particular to us because we've been to a lot of like placemaking installations, et cetera, which are temporary where you get amazing programming, but also the installation, like the, let's say the brick and mortar itself can add to that. Like with what we do, for example, you can repurpose it as products. Like with Lisa just said about Macra, which was exhibited in Dubai Design Week. It was there as an art installation on a public square. Um, and after one week, didn't just end up in landfill, but was resold and launched as a product. And I think that's one thing. So one is get the people there, have it interactive so they can engage with it um, and, you know, they get to know the area or whatever new development needs to be advertised, have a strong narrative behind it as well, which is like aligned with the current discourse, social issues, environmental issues, etc. But then also make sure it lasts. And combining installations with products is a very commercially valid way of doing so. Like we're also interested in doing branded lights for developers. We have a light installation, but it's also a light product that has been developed together. And it's great for marketing, but it's also great in the long run. It's mm. a good investment. Yeah. I mean, um, what you've said there about um, bringing the light installation elements together, I'm what I'm personally really curious about is how we will see um, technology will be used to gather data um, I know that that's quite a, a big topic um, at the moment on everyone's minds. Do you see any trends um, where you're using different types of technology for the landlord? I think one good point, a very simple, simple method of doing is have a campaign on like post this, this hashtag and win so-and-so or be reposted. That's a very quick and simple way which makes both happy because um the people 
get content for their social media and the provider gets their data in return. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's like a, a fun and also a legal exercise of doing so. You're not breaching anything, mm-hmm. um, but it has the furthest outreach. Yeah. And it's also free marketing for, for all for everyone involved, basically. And are you seeing more inquiries in that space from landlords or is it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have both Lisa and I, we uh, worked in China and Hong Kong a lot in the previous years. Mm-hmm. And all the projects we did in China were all about the selfie moments, much more than here, mm-hmm. especially shopping malls there are like, that's the place to be. It's the shopping mall. Yeah, uh, You don't get any other piazza in a city or something, but it's the shopping mall. So everything, the shop design, the retail design, all the front of house designs have to be selfie moments and have to be an immersive experience. Mm-hmm. Much, much more than here. We're, we're, we're there in the UK compared to other yes. countries in Europe. But You can yeah. certainly see in the major cities a move to that in the UK, mm-hmm. but certainly not to that extent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. It, will, it will be very interesting to see how that trend continues. Yeah. Um, so from a landlord's perspective, how do you then take a placemaking scheme and have it enhance your brand? So I think it's important to look at the identity of not just those who are going to visit the placemaking scheme, but who you are providing the scheme for. And it's very much about a curated design approach. So what is the ethos? Um, is it driven by sustainability? Is it driven by education? What is the key kind of identity that we want to come across in our placemaking scheme and then translating that into everything we do. So from the research and material choice all the way down to how we turn this into a commercial added value project by making it, for example, our lights that then become products you can sell afterwards, or are we programming the installation instead so that you can come for ticketed events? We just need to approach that very closely with the marketing team. Everything is done in close consultation with marketing these days, isn't it? Very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is why they're so valuable um, to us to consult. And I'm finding myself consulting with marketing a lot more these days. And uh, All the time. <laughs> it's amazing that creativity that um, they have, which I lack. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also interesting, actually, now that we talk about it, we had looked at before um, the can plays making become the marketing behind like. Um, the new kind of high-res development because a lot of people, they think, oh, we just fit out the penthouse or like the show flat to make people purchase this. But can we create that experience in a different way? Is it use it through, you know, virtual realities? Mm -hmm. Or is there something else that we can explore in terms of technology or a feature installation that speaks about the brand and the ethos and the space, the identity of the building itself but isn't necessarily just like colors on the wall and the material that it's going to be in the end. It's more than the cushions. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the same with marketing suites. Like, I mean, personally, I think we're we're bored of show flat marketing suites, um, kind of show home. There can be more behind it and it doesn't actually represent the brand. It just shows this is how your sofa could look like in your living room. I think more can happen Mm. than that. Right. Like, can you define what the experience of living in that building will be rather than what your flat will look like? Mm. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, and I know that when we've spoken about this before, everyone's got different tastes. And if you're marketing to ultra high net worths wanting to move in, I'm fairly sure they won't be wanting to go for a fairly bland looking sofa with all neutrals. And they want to look, they want to see how it looks with their own stamp on it. Yeah. So how they can use technology to actually enable that will be really crucial actually looking looking forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so given your experience, particularly um, with trends seen over the last year with the global um, circumstances being in such flux, what would you say your vision for the placemaking of, of the future will be um, in London? I have quite a strong opinion on this. So I actually come from an urban design background and I have, I should say, a, a frustration with the fact that everyone speaks about London's green spaces as, as if they're so accessible. They like to say, like, I think, I can't remember the exact statistic, but like 90% of London's green space are, is accessible. I'm like, that's not quite true. We might be a very green city and probably one of the greenest in Europe, but you can't get to those spaces. So many spaces are private gardens that belong to the residents of that square or particular space. And so how can we perhaps look at all the commercial spaces? People are going to be working from home more. Is there a way we can bring the urban park indoors? Is there something we can do to drive um, biodiversity and create like these spaces where you can literally just go pop up your laptop, sit inside like an urban oasis indoor? Mm-hmm. It sounds really idyllic and it sounds like something you would find in, like Southeast Asia or paradise. But I feel like if we can curate the right planting and the right materials, this has to be able to happen here as well. Yeah. And another aspect, um, which goes kind of hand in hand with this, I've recently been in a few roundtable discussions with the Culture Mile London. Um, they had invited creatives from all over London, mainly London, but actually all over England, um, because a lot of them work in the city of London to talk about yeah, the problem of the city is empty, right? What do you do with all those empty commercial spaces within London? So that's how they got the creatives together, get our heads together, exchange ideas, make proposals. And they just, after all those roundtable discussions we had for a few hours every every few weeks, <laughs> um, they just launched their report on that now. So that's quite an interesting read with proposals like how can commerce and culture work together better? Um, how can they actually merge into one and collaborate and you know make use of each other, mm. basically? Mm. With the rise on the age- of ESG on the agenda of landlords, are you seeing more and more inquiries for the for being um, for having installations that are particularly sustainable or um, any restrictions on on who you use as your suppliers for materials? Do they have to be to the to the highest possible standards with sustainability? Definitely more um, since the last year or two, especially. It's become sustainability is key, um, both with the installations and the products we do. Like we couldn't just launch a product that looks pretty <laughs> or functions and works. <laughs> and the same with the installations. You, you have to have that. It's like become a standard aspect, basically. It's not even an add-on anymore, both topical and in terms of how they're being executed, the materiality. Yeah, I, I've had a feeling. I'm, it's certainly something that I'm hearing a lot more. And we're being, I feel like landlords are being held accountable for 
where all of their materials are coming from, even if it is using a third party um, placemaking um, team to come in, they, they even need to know where they're getting their stuff from. So yeah, I think what, what we've also found is that you have a lot more developers who didn't necessarily have a sustainability department or kind of weren't necessarily thinking about this. And now they have a head of sustainability. They have a whole team looking at how can we curate placemaking schemes that speak to the brand and make sure we're aligning with what the mayor of London is asking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also what the society is asking for, because like the next generation, they're going protesting for environment, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. they are the future uh, and the present and they need to cater for their Absolutely. future customers. <laughs> yeah, quite right. Yep. It's only going to become more and more of an issue, I think, as time yeah. goes by. So similar to how you also have the head of sustainability or these new departments, uh, people like British Land and other developers are going beyond the London plan and they're setting their own targets for sustainability and carbon emissions. So when we work with developers, we really have to be asking now about their targets and ensuring that we're hitting those as well. Mm. And also, I mean, we're seeing in the wider market, not necessarily in this space, but where asset managers and investment managers are... Um, exiting relationships with suppliers that don't have these standards, um, which is really interesting. And it'll be also interesting to see where on other aspects of the ESG spectrum, that will um, continue to be a trend. I agree. I think we're going to be designing with disassembly in mind. So mm -hmm. how are we going to take things apart and where are they going to end up? Mm -hmm. um, can they be turned into products, which is our kind of thought on this whole process, but how does that but, yeah. And also, like you mentioned earlier, where do they come from? Like with Eden, we made sure the planters are made from upcycled timber from construction sites that would have ended up uh, in landfill mm. otherwise, all the way down to the sourcing. Yeah, It sounds sourcing. like there is a lot considered from start to finish and these things aren't created on a whim. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to have experts uh, at hand like yourselves to really think of all that nitty gritty and project manage it from start to finish. Yeah. So thank you so much for um, joining me today. I've really enjoyed that discussion and found that we've touched quite a lot of different <laughs> areas. Yeah. So um, yeah, thank you so, so much. And um yeah, if anyone wants to know more or be put in touch with the with the team, um, please visit crestbridge.com or email me at stephanie.workman at crestbridge.com. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Real Assets, Real Expertise, a podcast from Crestbridge, presented by Stephanie Workman. To find more episodes of our podcast, go to our website, crestbridge.com, or where you usually download your podcasts. For more information on how Crestbridge can provide a range of services to support your real estate structures, visit our website www.realassetsrealexpertise.com.